In this episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast, I speak to Patricia Zolinski, who is an ocean activist and someone who's been working in coral conservation for several years now. We chat about her experiences in the Philippines and what kind of things they're looking out for to preserve coral reefs, and we get into why coral reefs are so important to our planet, how climate change is affecting them, and what we can do as individuals to help protect our oceans. As per usual, we get into some positive aspects of coral conservation and sustainability and a little bit of depressing reality about what's happening. But remember, it is important for us to stay informed and knowledgeable about the negatives and what is facing our earth to better be able to protect it and to stop these issues. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Patricia did a great job in explaining everything and I hope you guys get inspired to get out there to do little changes in your everyday life to help protect our reefs. Or if you live closer to coral reefs, actually jump into the reefs and get some coral conservation experience under your belt. Thanks so much and let's get into it. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. and welcome to another episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today I have Patricia Zolinski here, who is an ocean activist and just eager ocean lover. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here today, Patricia. Of course, thank you for having me. So to just dive right in, could you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into, you know, ocean activism in the first place? Sure. So Currently, I am a master's student, and I am pursuing my master's degree in coral conservation. And I started kind of getting the my passion for ocean conservation when I was probably around four. Um, oh, wow. I was, Early <laughs> yeah, on. <laughs> I was pretty young. Uh, my parents used to say I would swim in the ocean or we went on vacation and they would have to literally drag me out of the water and just <laughs> feed me and to give me some water. And um, way back when, I believe here in the States, President Bush was the, the president at the time. And I would yeah. mail him, you know, letters and posters of telling him like, hey, you need to take ocean conservation more seriously or just conservation in general, whether it's the ocean or, you know, on land, terrestrial and whatnot. So started there and then I became a uh, dive instructor and I got to get a little more hands-on with your average Joe, so to speak. And they started to actually pay attention to the issues that they didn't think were an issue that scientists were, you know, rambling about, so to speak of whether it was climate change or plastic pollution and mm -hmm. then actually showing them this is an issue and it should be taken seriously instead of just 
just a bunch of hoopla that people are trying to make a, a bigger deal out of. And I kind of just went from there. I worked for a bunch of different nonprofits and did a lot of community outreach specifically with children um, ages four to eight and teaching them about plastic pollution, how to kind of recycle it, if you can even call plastic recyclable, but mm -hmm. kind of finding another life for it. So they would make little crafts with the plastic, uh, making like a little nursery or a jug of sorts and comparing the differences between a plastic bag and what a jellyfish looks like. No, so that's fantastic. Could you tell us a little bit about the different um, NGOs you worked in? Yeah, so the most recent one was in the Philippines and it was called Institute for Marine Research. Um, they're a great organization. I really enjoyed working with them. And they did majority coral conservation off of their coasts there. And it was to see all the impacts. So if it was human impacts, um, you know, predation such as the crown of thorns or Drupella species, which is a snail and climate change. So bleaching events and whatnot, seeing how that's targeted and how it can be kind of mitigated through, if it is human's fault, so to speak, how we can change mm -hmm. that. Um, since some places that we checked were highly um, dove by tourists, so the higher population there is of people, the higher damage there will be to corals, unfortunately. So yeah. trying to find a, a little middle ground of how we can, you know, have people see these beautiful reefs as well as protecting them. Basically six to seven days a week and did two or three dives. And then we did the, the day analysis. So it was wow. very hands-on work. And I kind of got to get a little more feel of a marine biologist and a coral conservationist mm -hmm. so it was a lot of fun and I got to get published twice which is also I think one of my my greatest accomplishments I can say in life congratulations what are the articles called so one is with their annual report um, and I helped write for one of the dive sites that they did and then another is just a little status report of the dive site so they're both called atmosphere dive site reports, and that's just in the annual report as well. They have, I believe, 19 dive sites that they check continuously if there's an increase or decrease in all the impacts there. What did you, how long were you there and what kind of trends did you see personally versus um, what they've been tracking for a long time? So I was there for three to four months and the sites that were heavily populated by tourists had the most damage and it was mostly bleaching and pollution. So we found a lot of fishing lures and trash and then just a lot of bleached corals. And then the other places that weren't really dove or snorkeled by tourists, it was a mixture of um, some corals just will bleach just because they can. And then it was mostly crown of thorns predation. So we would find, um, I don't know how familiar you are with crown of thorns, but they leave just a giant circle mm -hmm. on the coral. So we would see that. And then some of it was also disease. So we were trying to figure out what the disease was coming from, if it's the increase in you know sea surface temperatures or if it's from bacteria or oils from you know human hands and stuff like that. And then, the sites that weren't also dove heavily, it, 
was also a mixture of, you know, healthy versus non-healthy corals. So it was an interesting dynamic of what was really there. But now they're seeing they're having a, a big outbreak of the crown of thorn sea star just all over the coast there. So they're trying to find a way to eradicate them a little bit so that they don't heat off all the corals. Yeah, no, because we experience a lot of crown of thorns here on the east coast of Australia. And it's really scary how much of the reefs are just being destroyed. And there's even organizations who just go out to try and kill the crown of thorns to decrease the impacts of the epidemic. But I didn't know how widespread crown of thorns was around the world. Do you guys have any you know, theories of why they're increasing in populations? What I read about from them, and I could be entirely wrong about this, but they were just saying that um, since the waters are getting a little bit warmer in the Philippines mm-hmm. there, that allowing them to kind of reproduce a little bit quicker and they're just, you know, kind of overtaking kind of like the lionfish down here in the Florida Keys, yeah. where I currently stationed here. So it's one of those things. And it's just been, they also, I think, had a storm. Uh, yeah. can just reproduce that way yeah and it's just happening at a faster rate where the corals aren't having time to regenerate because coral growth is extremely slow right this episode is sponsored by you guys thank you to everyone who likes and follows this podcast whether it's on spotify or apple itunes or youtube it would mean the world to me if you could give it a like or add it to your playlists Uh, It really helps me boost uh, in the algorithm. You can also join the Ocean Pancake family by getting yourself Blastic is the Killer t-shirt, which is available on oceanpancake.com, where you can support the mission to continue ocean education and science communication. Now back to the episode. So could you you tell our audience a little bit about... um, you know, coral reefs in general, and why are they so important to kind of preserve, and why are they used as an indication of overall marine health so much? Sure. So, in very layman terms, corals are basically nursery grounds. So, small juvenile fish or small and juvenile organisms can go and hide out in these corals to avoid predation, and they'll able be able to also, if it's a maternal kind of um, animal, they'll be able to kind of raise that that fish or whatever it is to adulthood so they'll know how to survive on their own. And some corals are fast growing and some are slow growing. So you want to have a lot of biodiversity of corals as well as you would want a lot of biodiversity in fish. And that's kind of what corals are as well. They're not just nursery ground, but they also promote biodiversity in, in all organisms. So the more in different variety of species, whether that's fish or crabs and and all that, you want that within your ecosystem so that if something is sick and injured, something else can kind of take that out and they'll be able to regrow that population. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if many people think about it this way, but they're also considered ecosystem services. And for those that aren't sure what that means, it just means how it benefits humans. So corals are the number one provider of fish, which is a huge livelihood for a lot of developing countries as well as developed countries. And it also promotes tourism. 
which is also a big revenue for especially developing countries since they don't have that much else besides corals. So if we kind of start degrading yeah. our corals, you start seeing a decline in revenue and some countries might go bankrupt or experience that kind of loss in revenue and people won't want to go out and they would rather go elsewhere where these corals are. I mean, the other biggest thing is they protect us from storms. So if we ever have a hurricane or God forbid a tsunami, so to speak, now it'll protect the full thing of the tsunami, but it will protect us from the storm surge if we ever have anything like that, or especially from the big storms. So we don't have to have property damage from flooding. But since we are seeing mm -hmm. a decrease in, you know, coral populations, we're also seeing a decrease in fish populations, which also causes an increase in um, the things that eat those fish, which causes a decrease in phytoplankton. Phytoplankton is uh, these super microscopic little organisms that provide us with oxygen. And they produce over 80-90% of the oxygen that we breathe. We start losing the corals and mm -hmm. having in those, which not to make you or anybody else who's listening to this later feel sad. We, if we don't have oxygen, humans will not survive. As unfortunate and gloomy and sad as that is, that's kind of what it comes down to. If you don't protect these things, something else, there's going to be an a, a shift in something else, which will cause a shift in something else, which may not seem like an issue now, but it is starting to become an issue. And there is becoming a decline in phytoplankton as well, which isn't a good sign or indicator either. But that is kind of the gist of what corals are needed for. They, they do help humans with you know, revenue and bringing tourism and the fishing industry, but they also help us from you know, protects us from all these storms that we are starting to encounter. Without sounding too doom and gloomy, let's let's try and focus back around to um, the work that is being done to counteract all of these things. So uh, you're part of this coral conservation kind of mission. And um, what have your organizations kind of witnessed in the years since they've started working? So what have you learned? And um, do you guys also um, make your own coral nurseries or outplant corals or anything like that? Yes. Yeah, so down here in the Keys, that's one of the biggest things that is being done to promote the biodiversity of corals. So the biggest one is in Key Largo, I believe. And they have outplanted, mm -hmm. I can't remember the number off the top of my head right now, but thousands of corals. And they take fast-growing corals such as Elkhorn and you know Acropora, and they'll they'll put them yeah. in these little e pipes and kind of string them along, kind of like on a Christmas tree, and just clean it for a month or so, and then they'll take the bigger pieces of those corals and cement them into boulder corals that are kind of half dead, if I can even say that, and. They'll do that and then mm -hmm. they'll monitor how those corals are growing throughout, you know, the year, the next five years and so on and seeing if it's actually working. And they are starting to, I know there's other organizations out here in the Keys that are trying to do some genetic monitoring and 
kind of yeah. getting the best genes or the most resilient genes for against climate change, you know, bleaching or even predation and, and disease and trying to, you know, replicate those and kind of have corals mate and get more of those offspring to have that resilience. So that's what's happening down here in the Keys. And I've been a part of it as much as I can between work. Um, but the company that I work with down here, they, are, they also help out planting. So whenever I have a day off or anything, I'll go in and join other organizations for out planting these corals and be a little more hands-on perspective and seeing how the little baby corals are doing and if they're they are growing and if I see anything trying to eat them and we always take all of that off as well so that is that is the upside of it mm -hmm. and of course there's each coral I didn't know this until I started working in um, the Philippines and then kind of comparing the different issues that are occurring um, worldwide the Philippines has the Philippine corals have a different resilience I noticed than to Australia's corals, which I thought was interesting because they're both experiencing the same problem. They have different kind of outcomes. I always thought that was kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. How could these, these same species of corals- Do you corals feel like they're more resilient than the Australian ones? Um, for bleaching, yes. I don't know about disease and all of that, mm -hmm. but based on bleaching, they're a little more resilient than I've noticed from studies that I've noticed from Australia, which I thought was quite interesting that these little corals can yeah. still you know, adapt differently wherever they are. Yeah, I do think partially it is um, due to runoff as, as much as it is to the changing water temperature and the heat waves and everything um, where Australia's corals are just struggling a lot more um, because of the amount of, you know, sugarcane farms and all the other farms that are all on the East Coast and uh, the recent Great Barrier Reef, like water uh, quality surveys have just been showing that the water quality is just not up to standard. And I think that's not helping the little corals from, you know, staying resilient to other issues that may be facing them. I don't know about the Philippines and how much runoff is coming from the rivers there, uh, from agriculture and everything like that, but it just shows what a complicated and <laughs> wicked problem it is, how so many different aspects kind of contribute to, to the coral reef. So it's really important, the work that you're doing to learn more about it. Yes, that is, that is the goal, to help you know, protect these species. I mean, I'm also an avid shark diver as well. So as I'm sure as you know, if you see sharks mm -hmm. on a reef, you have a healthy reef. If you don't see sharks, then it's kind of like, hmm, something, something is not right here. So especially down here in the Keys, I don't see that many oh. sharks diving. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a concern. It's the more you dive as well, though, though the, the more you realize like the key species like sharks but here I've started noticing like coral trout populations or in the U.S. I think they're called groupers the yep. uh, reef groupers groupers 
the Comoros, which is in the Indian Ocean, just north of Madagascar, we just saw tons of little ones, but no larger fish, you know, which are in their sexual maturity, therefore can reproduce. So over like 30, 40 centimeters. And it just showed that overfishing was still a massive issue. And very few sharks were there as well. Well, here in Australia, you know, I see a lot more sharks, but then in some areas, I just don't see any of these coral trout or other key species that I've started noticing. So you can, you can see some places the coral's healthy, but then it's overfished. So then certain species are missing and it's just, it's such, <laughs> such a complicated problem. Um, but yeah, our, our shark numbers are doing great, which is nice. So we see sharks every dive. If we don't see a shark, it's, it's unusual. And it's probably means we didn't turn around because he was hiding behind us. <laughs> but otherwise, how are the reefs around um, Florida doing now? Because last time I spoke to someone who worked in coral conservation there. Battling with the stony coral tissue loss disease, which flared up first in 2014 and was mentioned on the Ocean Pancake podcast with Tanya Ramzeyer. Episode 20. I'm not too sure of the disease aspect. But I do know they've started, you know, out planting all of these corals. The populations, wherever these little nurseries are, there's one in Key Largo, there's one here where I am in Marathon, and there's one in Key West. And all throughout those three, mm -hmm. they've all been doing really well. I think some have been experiencing some disease, but not enough that to make an impact or to have it be a level of concerns from what I've read and talked to. Mm -hmm. the people the organizations that you know do these outplanting so I can't fully address that issue I haven't really looked into it that much as well but I mean they all seem doing great um they keep out planting I think every week or so and there's been some setbacks here just due to weather um but they've all been doing pretty well that's really good news that these new little populations are thriving and growing at good rates uh, how, how do you kind of hope to protect these new populations, though, from potential future bleaching? Or do you have a plan in place for that? I don't think you can ever have a true plan for that. Changes needs to happen. And I know it's not going to be a, a quick fix of it. I see climate change is going to be your, your biggest variable there. But also just trying to educate yeah. novice divers there and novice snorkelers who think that corals are rocks and that if you touch them nothing will happen which is false um they are animals and if you do touch them sometimes yeah. the oils on, on our fingers will cause them to be bleached and trying to get out of that mindset that you know mm -hmm. yeah we might be like an apex predator but we need these to to survive like we rely on these corals for fish and for other luxuries that you know we take for granted sometimes so I think just education would be the biggest factor in just teaching them how to be kind of an eco diver and being aware of like you said these key species that are there not like noting them if you see them noting if you don't or noting if um, you see any disease or predation going going on so that you know you can document it and send it to your local scientists there your local organization I know there's a an app called I forgot the name of it already, but it's something to do with coral. I think it's called iCoral. I think it's a very generic name. Um, and you can take pictures of, you know, a bleaching or a predation event or a disease event, and they'll send it to, 
you know, scientist that's within the area and they'll document it and, you know, make a plan for whoever's organization, you know, falls in that realm to address it and see if it's an actual issue or if, you know, maybe this coral was already sick to begin with and just had a low resistance to something and just was natural causes there. Yeah, definitely. Because there are so many different reasons why it could happen. But yeah, it is so important for us to keep uh, focusing on the education of future generations as well. And you said part of um, your work has been uh, doing outreach and then working with children and all that education. How have you found, what have you found to be the most like efficient route to get into these kinds of uh, positions? So how do you find how you can help in your particular region or do you, are you on Facebook groups or is it job advertisements or from people you know? It's honestly a mixture of both. And then, um, so especially the, the teaching aspect, it comes with my job, so to speak. So as, as a dive instructor mm-hmm. and as a um, conservationist, like you're always talking to people and people will always ask questions about what I do or, or how do I do it or how ways that they can help. So just educating people kind of on a daily basis is kind of what my job entails. Um, and having that, I always give out, you know, my card or my number, or my email, if they wanted to get more information about whatever it is you're talking about, whether it's corals or sharks or, you know, just general ways that they can be um, achieve like a zero waste lifestyle and in ways that I'm trying to improve on that as well. Um, or things that they should be bringing with them when they go diving or snorkeling or things that they shouldn't be bringing with them. I know the biggest thing that I've been telling people down here is their sunscreen. You should be wearing reef safe mm-hmm. sunscreen just because that, you know, helps without without declining the, you know, those coral populations and some of those chemicals are toxic to to the corals. So little things like that. I am on Facebook groups as well, just chatting with different members from all over the world with different experience and knowledge and kind of comparing notes and being like, that's a good idea, or like, let's try it this way and see if it works a different way. The reef suns reef safe sunscreen has been a big phenomenon that's now like sweeping um, the world where Hawaii's put in bans and now Australia's become much more aware of it and Florida as well. So it's a good kind of thing that people can feel that they can uh, do do for themselves if they're going into the ocean. But also I, I like to tell people, you know, you want to be wearing reef safe sunscreen, even if you're inland or going into any water waterway just because I don't know there's just so many chemicals in everything we wear and put on us that uh all all drains essentially lead to the ocean so you might as well start with these better alternatives wherever you're living um just in case of you know the downstream effects of it uh and you know just getting the hang of choosing sustainable options and voting with our wallet essentially how have you felt the uh, response is generally from the public in Florida and the kind of climate around all of this? I've noticed it's kind of a mixed bag. Some people are fully for it and mm-hmm. others are kind of against it. And it's, 
I just think some those people who are against it, it's more of a they don't want change. I think is really what it comes down to. Like they've been doing this for X amount of years and it's been working, especially with like sunscreen. Most people will just buy the cheapest thing they can find. And unfortunately the reef safe ones are a little more expensive at times. And they don't necessarily just want to change it because, you know, it's more expensive. It's just more of a, like an old mindset of, you know, I've been doing this for so long. It's been working just fine. Kind of ignorance is bliss. I don't see the effects, so it's not really a problem on their mind. And even if you do show them, it's more of like, you know, that's just a rare occurrence is what I've noticed with some people. It's just, you know, it happens, it's nature. And then they kind of move along with it. And you're like, that's not, that's not what we're trying to say. Yeah. But those, those people are a little harder to, to reach. And I'm still trying to find a way to kind of find the right approach because if you shove it all in their face they're not gonna they're gonna tune you out obviously if you don't show them they're they're not gonna care so trying to find that weird middle ground of like this is an issue and you should care because of x y and z is still something you know that is I'm hoping to find a solution for I don't know if someone else has but that's kind of where I'm at with like most Floridians down here yeah yeah, that's the thing. You always have to approach it from a position of positivity and encouragement and, you know, little steps amounting to bigger changes. Uh, but unfortunately, so much of the climate change and all these things is up to the big corporations and the government. So we, you know, we need to try and vote with our time and our attention and our money um, to try and support the greener options in the world <laughs> yes very much so so you've had this incredible career you know that's that spanned you know reefs across the world and now you're working in florida for people who might want to kind of follow in in the footsteps of traveling the world and learning more about different corals or other conservation missions that they can. Do you have any advice on how to kind of get into it or what they should be looking out for or anything like that? That's funny. I, the place that I work, um, my boss asked me to talk to a recent graduate of who's just getting into the field. Mm -hmm. She asked me the same question. And the biggest advice I can give for that is take every opportunity that is given to you. Um, and just be open-minded and kind of toss, as weird as it may sound, toss the idea of what you think you're going to do for five years out the window. Um, I had a totally different plan for myself. If you talked to me like three or five years ago, where I'd be in life, that that did not follow suit. And I mean, I don't regret it at all. It took me all over the world. But just be open-minded and, you know, even if you're not interested in a specific topic, whether it's maybe you're interested in corals and maybe you're more interested in, you know, phytoplankton, whatever it is, even if you're not interested in that particular topic, still learn from it. Everything is kind of interconnected mm -hmm. and intertwined. And if you can understand one aspect of whatever you want to pursue in life, you'll be able, you'll be kind of set for whatever career goal you want in there because, even if it is something you don't want to do, you'll still get that data analysis and the public speaking, everything else that comes with the job. And you'll 
become a proud it and then when you get your dream job whatever that may be you will thrive and you'll be able to be a mentor to other scientists and be able to give them you know the best advice possible so that they don't have to necessarily struggle like you did to get to where you are so I think that is the greatest thing I can say is just take everything you can and learn from everybody uh, just take whatever you can gain all the knowledge even if it seems small and kind of useless. You, you'll think about it maybe five, 10 years down the road and be like, you know, this was kind of important. And I'm glad that I learned from this person or I took what they said and made it my own and made this great accomplishment, whatever that may be. Yeah. Well, that's some really good piece of advice. Uh, and to finish off the podcast, I always ask all of my guests the same question, which is, if you could give one piece of advice on how they can best help our oceans so something they can do today right now what would that be best thing that you can do I know it touches a little bit upon what you've already mentioned but yeah just to to kind of I would, I would say the best one idea do is use less water um if you use can. less water yeah. I mean, if you started using less water now, that would cause less runoff, like we've both talked about a few times, which will cause less, you know, mm -hmm. the oceans, which will not cause a decline in um, coral species, but it also helps um, with having cleaner water, at least here in the States as well. I'm not sure how it is in Australia there, but it also saves a lot of people, a lot of taxpayers here money on their water bill so it also saves you some money so it all is kind of it's a win-win it saves you money and it, it saves our corals there i think that's a great piece of advice and i absolutely love how experts all over the world who've come onto the podcast always have a different new piece of advice so we haven't heard this one before even though it's such a simple and basic thing people can really do now just consider the water they use whether that's for how often they wash things or what items they purchase or how much they water their garden and all of that um patricia thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and of course uh on the ocean pancake website we'll have the links to you know all of your uh, pages and the things that you have mentioned in today's session uh but yeah I, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh look forward to hearing progress and hopefully more positive stories from florida about the coral reef uh nursery regrowths yeah thank you for letting me have this opportunity Once again, for coming onto the podcast, Patricia, it was really great to have you and to learn about coral reefs and what was happening in Florida and that the outplanting is going well. So we're going to keep keeping our fingers crossed and doing little things in our day-to-day -day life to try and minimize our impact on the oceans. As always, thank you guys for listening. Make sure to check out Ocean Pancake on Facebook, Instagram, uh, maybe TikTok coming soon. I don't know. Otherwise, you can find all the information to do with this podcast episode at oceanpancake.com, where you will have links to all the things that Patricia spoke about. 
As always, I'd like to say a big thank you to Graham Mose, who's the mind behind these tunes and beats that are featured in this episode. He's a fantastic singer, performer, writer, composer, who actually uh, performs live in Brisbane, Australia. So if you have a chance to go check him out, head on over to Graham Mose Music. And yeah, I'll see you guys in the next episode.